Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good week. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. And for some of you, wherever you may live in the world, it might already be Friday as I speak. But here we are um, discussing November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher. In this uh, segment, we're going to be learning about uh, Cleveland, Ohio. We already know that Cleveland is right along Lake Erie's waters, but we're going to learn um, about how the city of Cleveland endured this uh, storm. After all, it's not just those whom are out on the uh, vessels navigating Great Lakes waters during this storm, but we should keep in mind that people who live along the shores and even in the cities do feel the effects of the uh, storm. They may not be right, they may not be like confined exactly to the waters, but remember folks, even storms themselves impact those whom live along land. So no matter how close you are to the water, or no matter how far you might be from the water, or water's edge, I should say, the storm itself can wreak havoc, big and small. So, let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and learn whatever there is uh, that's relevant about how Cleveland, Ohio, was impacted by um, the the um, hurricane from 1913. Now, um, I should point out that um, when I think of Ohio, um, it is hard to believe at one time, many, many years ago, that um, prior to Ohio becoming a state, that um, Virginia, where I live, Virginia's territory stretched into what we now know as present-day Ohio. And one of the reasons for why I know that is because... um, a fellow Virginia named uh, Robert Carter. His name was um, his nickname was King Carter, and the reason why he was referred to as King Carter, not because he was a an actual king, it had to do with how much land he possessed. Robert Carter, aka King Carter, was um, one of America's uh, wealthiest individuals in the. Um, 17, um, I want to say he was born sometime in the mid-17th century and died at some point during the 18th century. But he was so rich, folks, that his land holdings stretched, as, stretched into uh, present-day Ohio. His land holdings were probably uh, somewhere around half a million acres. What does that tell you right there? A person of his status, not just so much of his status, but how much land he owned. I mean, the the man owned land as far um, west in Virginia as the Shenandoah Valley. He owned land into probably what we know as um, perhaps as present-day western Pennsylvania, as well as uh, good uh, portions of uh, modern-day West Virginia. So whenever uh, we think of Ohio, sometimes we should be reminded that at one time... um, Ohio might have been considered a part of Virginia. Of course, whenever I think of Ohio, I think of um, more than just Cleveland. I think of uh, Columbus being Ohio's capital. So to the northeast is uh, Cleveland, and in the central part of Ohio is the capital, uh, Columbus. Southwest, or maybe I should say southern Ohio, is Cincinnati. Um, Northwest Ohio lies Toledo, uh, closer to um, Michigan, or rather I should say Detroit, Michigan. So Ohio has a um, unique uh, geography in terms of where its uh, cities are located. Uh, But nonetheless, um, I know that uh, Ohio is a great state to visit. I haven't really done a whole lot of sightseeing in Ohio, but I would um, like to do just that. So our first leadoff question... uh, for this uh, segment of November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher is the following. Had Cleveland, Ohio experienced above average temperatures prior to what was already taking place along Great Lakes waters? Let me ask you this. In November, isn't it fair to say that uh, along the Great Lakes that most, most, if not most, all um, places, villages, towns, cities, shouldn't they ex- 
be experiencing uh, near average temperatures? Shouldn't they exper start experiencing uh, colder weather? Yes. But come um, early November, it, it's a whole different story. And it just so happens to be that Cleveland, Ohio is not immune. Cleveland, as a city, had endured above normal spring temperatures. So in other words, this is not just some isolated uh, fluke incident. Cleveland has been experiencing above normal uh, temperatures uh, since spring. And in late March of 1913, a devastating flood made its way through the majority of Ohio. But miraculously, Cleveland was spared. I just find it very hard to believe that somehow Cleveland got spared. Unfortunately, cities to the southwest, um, like Dayton, which is actually just north of Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio was not so lucky. Uh, Dayton, Ohio endured a tremendous wrath um, behind what the storm uh, brought about in terms of a um, devastating flood. And for those of you... Um, it's probably good to be reminded that whenever we think of Dayton, Ohio, there are two people that should come to our minds. Orville and Wilbur Wright. Yes, they might have made history along North Carolina's Outer Banks in Kitty Hawk. But we should also remember where the Wright brothers hailed from. They hailed from Dayton, Ohio. And there is a, a museum in Dayton called... Um, it's uh, technically it's at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, of course, Wright being in honor of the Wright brothers. But there is a museum honoring uh, the Wilbur and Orville Wright for all of their uh, work in, uh, early, in America's uh, early aviation history. Now, the entire summer of 1913 saw uh, temperatures stay well above average. And the same went for um, fall in Cleveland. However, come Sunday, November 9th, Cleveland, Ohio's state of weather began to change drastically. So drastically that where on November 9th, the day started out with rain. But it didn't rain forever. The temperature, um, or rather I should say the precipitation changed to where we now, to where we started out from rain to now all of a sudden wet snow. And yes, most of the time wet snow doesn't do a whole lot, but at the same time, if the temperatures are just right and the temperature is dropping, what happens to that wet snow? Well, the wet snow accumulates, meaning that the snow sticks to the ground. If, if there is wet snow and temperatures are above 32 degrees, it's probably not going to stick. You, you'll get a coating or a little dusting at best. But if we're talking about um, a dropping or droppage in, say, 15, 20 degrees, and it's really getting frigid, say, in the mid-teens outside, then yes, this snow is going to um, not only stick, but it's going to accumulate. So just before 2 o'clock, the uh, Weather Bureau had reported that winds reached 40 miles an hour. Well, remember when the skies of November turn gloomy, anything is, uncer anything is um, uncertain. There's no guarantees. As a matter of fact, many of sailors who would often say that um, nothing's guaranteed in the month of November. You know, yes, you might be finishing out your last voyage, but it doesn't mean that as you are going out on your last voyage, it doesn't mean that um, you might come home. It, it's a horrible thing to say, but when you are willing to risk it all by uh, going out on one more voyage, one or two more voyages in November, as the shipping season comes to an end, uh, there are no guarantees. And what that means is the weather is just so uncertain. Once the skies turn gloomy, there's no uh, going back. So it's you either come home alive or or you don't. I'm not trying to sound negative, but those are the, the uh, realities and the, and the risks that go into this uh, line of work. Now, what had now become of Lake Erie's waters on November the 9th? What do you think had become of Lake Erie's waters 
all of a sudden now on November 9th. Well, for starters, Lake Erie's waters began to produce choppy waves. Whenever the waves become choppy, that's obviously the opposite of calm. When waves become choppy, that means that um, bad stuff lies ahead. How about an increase in overall wind velocity being speed? And with an increase in speed, that means that the greater the likelihood that winds will will exceed what uh, what the uh, wind speeds might have originally called for. So if they if forecasters originally said that winds might be 10 15 miles an hour, if you get choppy waves that are coming left and right and the winds are starting to pick up, you might more than likely see a um, doubling in the wind speed. So going from starting out 15 could now put you at 30 miles an hour and of course now, by 2 o'clock, um, obviously, uh, the winds are at 40 miles an hour. Secondly, uh, boats were uh, coming apart. What do you mean that boats were coming apart? Were they, were they uh, coming apart like the boats were out on, um, out on the waters of Lake Huron? Not necessarily, but some boats, you could say, did sustain major damage to where um to where they were enduring where they were enduring intense um what I might call intense um wave um hitting in other words waves were coming in all directions to where the boats were just how do you call it it's like they were being flickered around they were uh, being thrown in one end all of a sudden a wave comes the next turning it over. In other words, these boats, um, the boats were sustaining damages from different levels, meaning, um, you know, wind intensity, wind speed uh, at all different uh, directions uh, in terms of, you know, okay, one end, 35, another more than 35 miles an hour. So the constant motion of waves hitting these boats, there's no end in sight. Wet and heavy snow falling down upon Cleveland was often responsible for bringing car traffic to a standing halt. I could see how heavy snow could, um, even in cities that are used to snow, could bring traffic to a complete halt. William Alexander, I remember his name was mentioned um, not too long ago from an earlier podcast, he is uh, Cleveland's uh, chief weather bureau reporter. He confirms that the barometric pressure dropped to 28.35 inches. It would be Cleveland's uh, second lowest recording, along with winds at 79 miles per hour. I can't imagine um, seeing winds gusting at 80 miles an hour. I mean, the most I've probably seen in my lifetime, maybe has been maybe maybe has been 40 to 50 although I do remember a few years back when my wife and I vacationed in Niagara Falls and it was cold we we're looking at late March start of April we spent a day and a half in Buffalo and on one of the days we were in Buffalo New York which is just south of Niagara Falls the wind was so bad that I literally thought um, I, I could have flown away I had to, my wife and I held on to each other's hands very, very hard to ensure that, um, that we weren't going to fly away. <laughs> Luckily, we, um, we made it to where it is, to where exactly we were going in Buffalo. But, um, but my wife uh, actually just confirmed to me a moment ago that uh, she thinks that the winds could have gusted to at least 80 miles an hour in Buffalo. But, uh, but the bottom line is, is that the uh, gusts, the bottom line is, is that gusts are very cannot be um, underestimated under uh, no circumstances. So, um, so given that the um, winds had reached 79 miles an hour, it turns out that the next nine hours, Cleveland's wind velocity would hold at anywhere from 60 to 62 miles per hour. For nine hours straight, folks, 60 to 62 miles an hour. 
talk about um, uncertainty right there, wondering if um, wondering if you know your home would endure um, any um, unexpected um, wrath from nature. From November 9th to the 11th, uh, the city itself saw just over 21 inches of snow come down. Cleveland had not seen anything like this until now. I mean, yes, Cleveland can see snow in November, but prior to 1913, over a three-day span, they had not seen 21 inches of snow come down. So, if you think about it, folks, between uh, Sunday the 9th and into Tuesday the 11th, just over 21 inches of snow, that means roughly 7 inches of snow, uh, on average, was had uh, fallen. Well, what is what do you think could be the next question here regarding Cleveland? What else is is there that we should know about? that is going to have an adverse effect on the city. What had the snowstorm done to Cleveland? Well, when a snowstorm of this epic proportion happens, would it be fair to say that um, all things transportation are um, so impacted to where transportation itself becomes limited? And when transportation becomes limited, is it fair to say that people are going to struggle to get from point A to point B? The answer is yes. So what had the snowstorm done to Cleveland? For starters, this storm restricted the city's transportation system, meaning that the railroad and streetcar, tra streetcar tracks were totally blocked off, including roads whose conditions were not safe for driving. Of course, in Virginia, where I live, we have what's called VDOT, the Virginia Department of Transportation, and when there is snow on the roads, that is on the main roadways, usually those are, are done first, so more often than not, I see VDOT trucks uh, coming along and plowing those roads with uh, plowing the snow off the roads, of course, the night before, depending on when a snowstorm is expected to arrive, they will pre-treat the roads with, um, with salt, or salt crystals, I should say. I don't know if in 1913 there would have been such a thing as salt crystals, but we do have to keep in mind that this um, snowstorm, there had been no warnings in advance for the snowstorm. Had there been uh, warnings in advance, or if there was enough evidence to uh, consider of, that a snowstorm was coming, I'm sure the city would have done everything in its power to have been prepared. But of course, in 1913, we've got to keep in mind that weather forecasting, although it has improved to a degree since the um, since the uh, we since the first weather recordings or the uh, signal service station had been first established in 1870. Yes, there had been improvements to an extent over 43 years, but we're, in 1913, we're not anywhere close to having weather technology like we know today that is far more superb, far more superior. And, of course, one would say now, well, okay, yes, we have great weather technology now, but five to ten years from now, we might have something else that's far better than what's currently in existence. So, yes, it's bad enough that the storm has restricted the city's transportation system, meaning that the railroad and streetcar tracks, and which are vital to you know getting um, people from one location to another in Cleveland, are now totally blocked off, and the roads, get, they're not safe for driving. Well, if the um, railroad and streetcar tracks are struggling as well as the roads. Would it be fair to say that anything uh, utility-wise is impacted? Oh, the answer is a definite yes on that. So electricity, telephone, and telegraph wires are all down, meaning that nobody had access to lighting or direct contact. 
direct contact folks, uh, phone communication. We have to remember in 1913, we don't have cell phones, folks. So we have no means of being able to text our parents or uh, relatives to say, hey, are you okay? Um, we don't have that. The only, th the only thing that we might be able to uh, compensate for and I'll probably mention this again, but I'll go ahead and mention it now. If there is anything that we could compensate for uh, in terms of not having any access to lighting, would be to um, use candlelight. In other words, take a match, carefully strike it, and uh, light the candle, and then place the candle in a candle holder. You know, we have to remember in uh, colonial times, 18th, 19th century, well before Thomas Edison arrives, what was our form of electricity? Candlelight. It worked. And yes, it might seem crazy to be taking 10 steps backwards as though you might be living in the Stone Age, but hey, you're now in the midst of a snowstorm that the city has never seen. Your, your options are very limited. So the only way you're going to be able to survive in terms of having any electricity is to um, is to use a, is to take a candle, strike your match, get it lit, cover it, so that um, so that you know you don't knock it down, your house catches on fire. But but for the time being, folks, candlelight is going to be the way to go for uh, survival. November eleventh, the local a local power company in Cleveland had no other choice but to cut off electricity. So it is fair to say that not everyone lost electricity, but why would they cut off electricity if you didn't lose it? Well, it turns out that businesses and residents agreed to let the, uh, this local power company cut off the electricity. The measure was done as a precaution to protect the public's well-being. In other words, they didn't want to waste electricity. They needed to conserve it because if the electricity was for these businesses and residences who hadn't lost it were still allowed and these people were still allowed to use electricity, then what would have happened come the next day um, later when all of a sudden they lost electricity? <laughs> well, the answer is obvious. Then nobody has electricity. So by conserving this electricity, um, they are... Um, they are helping the city out. And another major, there's there are a lot of concerns. We've already mentioned some of them, but I'm going to mention another one here. You know, this is something that's very easy to take for granted. And I'm going to have a sip of it right now. What do you think I'm drinking, folks? I know sometimes I've mentioned that I'm drinking tea, but I'm actually not drinking tea. I'm drinking water. Isn't it fair to say that sometimes we take drinking water for granted? Yes, we do. And it's not something we should do. Because there are a lot of uh, people in the world who sadly don't have access to uh, clean drinking water. So, in 1913, Cleveland's water supply from this storm is threatened. Given that the storm activity yielded sludge from Lake Erie's floors turning the water into a light brownish color. I know that doesn't sound appealing, folks, but this is what happened. And tap water was not um, immune either. Many of Cleveland's people expressed um, grave concerns about what was coming out of their faucets, or I should say sinks. Dr. Martin Friedrich, he was Cleveland's chief health officer, he issued a uh, stern, um, I don't know if I'd say warning is the right word, but he issued a um, an order. He advised the public to boil all city water. Normally, when we boil water, that's done, whenever I think of boiling water, I could think of a lot of things. But to me, when when I boil water, it's more often than not for making uh, pasta, spaghetti noodles, mac and cheese. But in this instance, uh, boiling all city water was meant to kill off 
all harmful bacteria. If you don't boil the water, then you are risking not only your life, but perhaps that of your families. So this was really the only way to ensure that the public was going to be safe until um, the greater problems could be uh, under uh, control. Who is uh, W.S. Howell? Now, I don't believe many of you all would know him, and that's fine. Uh, W.S. Howell is Cleveland's chief of police. Ch chief of uh, police W.S. Howell could not find a way to reach the police station. The chief of police could not find a way to reach the police station, folks, and there's an answer to that. The snowstorm was so bad that he was unable to find a way to be able to get access out of his neighborhood and into his um, police station. So how was he able to go about communicating with officers and staff who might have already uh, found a way uh, to get to their uh, precinct uh, station? Well, the chief of police went to his neighbor's home and used his neighbor's phone as a means of communicating with uh, the, the precincts. Well, you know, this is where kindness is at its best. I mean, this is where people step up and, and have to make a difference. This is where people are looking after one another. There's no bickering. You know, this is where we could say that everyone's in this together. You know, technology is limited, but you know what? Maybe that's okay. People aren't interested in pointing the fingers at one another. They're more interested in doing what's best for the greater public. How many precinct stations were without telephones? I'll give you a number. It's between three and five. The answer is three. So three being the number of precinct stations without telephones... These, um, the calls that, the, um, that these three precinct stations would have handled were taken by other stations. Police Chief W.S. Howe ordered all homeowners, and listen to this, folks. You talk about a um, stern order, but it was an order that had to be put into play, not only for the uh, public's well-being, but if the public didn't adhere to it, then grave consequences would have followed and... You know, as harsh as it may may sound, here again, this is where you have to put aside what's best for you and think about everyone else in the community as a greater whole. So, uh, Police Chief W.S. Howe ordered all homeowners to remove snow from their sidewalks, and he announced this over the um, over the uh, uh, radio. I guess you could say. W.S. Howell basically said that if you to the uh, people of Cleveland that, look, if you do not uh, remove the snow from your uh, sidewalks, you will face jail time due to not complying with the city law pertaining to snow removal in front of homes. And city police officers um, were vigilant on this. As a matter of fact, they stood guard over all electrical wires downed. In other words, by standing guard over all electrical wires down, they are ensuring that the public is safe. They're ensuring people, hey, uh, we're here uh, not only to um, look after you all, but we just want to make you all aware that there are that there are down wires. Do not come in contact with them because if you do, um, some some unfortunate things can happen. You know, it's one thing for a telephone pole to be down, but. The last thing you don't probably want to do is get too close to uh, downed wires. You know, um, no matter how skilled um, electricians are, I always take my hats off to electricians because um, they do work that's, um, that's um, how do I say it? It's dangerous work. They do more than just um, basic 101 stuff. I mean, they're fixing telephone poles. They're, they're fixing um, all sorts of things that um, no matter how well experienced they are, there's always a chance that something can happen. And um, 
So we just need to be reminded of what sacrifices they make. And here we are in this storm. Police officers are standing guard over all the electro electrical wires. In other words, they are they're placing signs, they're placing um, markers to tell people, hey, look, don't come near these areas because if you're not careful, something terrible can happen. Did um, Cleveland's uh, fire department struggle in being able to put out a fire already spreading quickly? Yes. The, snow, the snowfall amounts alone uh, covered fire hydrants to where they were no longer visible. You know, it's it's not hard to spot a fire hydrant, but can you imagine, given that Cleveland's endured 21 inches of snow, and how much snow that is to where the most basic uh, features that we see that are essential are now no longer visible to us, being a fire hydrant. You know, think about it. At, you know, at one time, even in colonial days, there was no such thing as a fire, a modern-day fire hydrant. Um, now, fire hydrants did come about, I want to say, in the late 18th century or start of the 19th century. But at one time, there was no such thing as a modern-day fire hydrant. So, um, so I can't imagine um, the fire hydrants being uh, covered in snow to where... Um, they were no longer visible, especially in the time of emergency. Five stations, that is five fire department stations, responded to the same alarm call, but by the time fire crews arrived, multiple stores had endured severe damage. But luckily, no deaths or injuries occurred. That's an act of God right there. People got out. They got out at the right time. Uh, what obstacles did hospitals face? Can you imagine being in a hospital right now? Whether you're a patient or a staff member, can you truly imagine now all of a sudden with this snowstorm, what kind of impacts the snowstorm can have on hospitals? So what obstacles do you think the hospitals began to face? Well, for starters, the snowstorm prevented drivers from being able to deliver medical supplies on time which led to what, folks? If medical supplies aren't delivered on time because of uh, an act of Mother Nature that, um, that the people didn't have any control over, that means that uh, surgical tasks or surgical procedures are going to be delayed. Think about it. We don't have such things as time-critical shipping back in 1913. And, you know, while, yes, history may have been made 10 years earlier with, uh, with the Wright brothers... Uh, making their um, historic um, takeoff on um, North Carolina's Outer Banks and Kitty Hawk, we have to remember that um, only, airplanes are still in their infancy in um, the United States. And we should also keep in mind that as time progresses with airplanes, the only people who might be able to uh, fly on an airplane are those who are wealthy. So, we have to keep in mind that in 1913, we don't have any um, such thing as hotshot service where we can get an airplane um, from, say, the neighboring state. Okay, in this case, you know, Ohio is um, to the uh, west is uh, Indiana and to the east is Pennsylvania, the north being Michigan. We can't get an airplane out of, um, out of nowhere who is willing to say, hey, I'll, I'll do an emergency hotshot flight with 100 uh, packages of medical supplies. Unfortunately, we don't, we're not anywhere um, close in 1913 to doing what we call expedited um, shipment service. However, uh, the, the one thing, there, there are some good things, though, that, that hospitals are able to do in terms of uh, modification. The medical staff worked by means of candlelight. Okay, so if the homes don't have electricity and hospitals don't have um, electricity, how are they going to, uh, uh, how, how can they function in terms of lighting? Candlelight. Luckily, the hospitals were heated by gas versus coal, meaning that the facilities were still functioning in terms of generating heat warmth to the patients and staff. 
So that is uh, a bit of good news right there. Some good news is better than no good news. Now, the newspapers reported uh, various stories about happenings, being stories that took place in the midst of the blinding snowstorm facing Cleveland. One of the local papers was known as the Plain Dealer. This paper reported that seven couples, believe it or not, folks, seven couples ventured out into wintry streets where they made their way to the courthouse. Now, why in the world would seven couples venture out into these um, terrible wintry conditions? Why would they need to be going to the courthouse? Were they wanting to pay um, to pay a, to pay anything that was outstanding that uh, that they were uh, behind payment on? Well, actually, it turns out that all seven couples were seeking to obtain marriage licenses. Can you believe that? And they were wanting to seek marriage licenses in the midst of a bad snowstorm. I think it had been fair for someone to have said, well, look, you know, your marriage license can wait. What about your life? You might not want to be playing with your lives right now. Well, these seven couples um, went to the um, courthouse and, um, and they were able to get their business taken care of. Uh, the newspaper also reported one man's actions of carrying women across the street given an intersection had not been plowed. Now, that's a, a very, very gentlemanly thing to do uh, in a time of crisis. After all, I think it's fair to say that the gentleman did not want to see any of the uh, women. I don't know how old they were, but I think it's fair to say that he didn't want to see them fall and hurt themselves. That's a nice act of kindness right there. Another man assisted a group of older women off the train by transporting them one by one on his horse to places of safety and shelter. And, you know, for these men, they weren't looking for fame. They were just doing what they knew was right and helping those whom, um, whom knew that perhaps they just uh, didn't feel confident enough to... Um, to walk out on a um, on a road that had not been plowed or just walk somewhere that maybe they weren't 100% familiar with. Okay, so it is fair to say that people are stranded, right? Could it be fair to say that travelers coming in and out of Cleveland are stranded? Yes. So how did the city of Cleveland go about assisting those whom were stranded being those of uh, homeless status? How do you think the city helped out? Well, taverns. Of course, when I think of taverns, I think of 18th century uh, colonial Williamsburg, um, the time before and leading up to the American Revolutionary War. But taverns um, being places of lodging and dining, they could be both. They allowed the stranded and the homeless to sleep on their floors as well as uh, chairs and couches. And they did this all without any charge. If anybody was willing to charge these people in the midst of a uh, weather crisis, then all I can say is that those, um, what do you call it, owners um, have lots and lots of problems. You know, it's one thing for a um, winter storm to occur, but sometimes to um, profit in a time of crisis is not always a, um, an ethical thing to be doing. Even movie theaters... Um, were willing to go the extra mile uh, to open their doors um, for emergency lodging in the same manner that uh, taverns had done so. I tell you, Cleveland uh, should be commended for what they're doing. Now, what beverage, besides water, became a primary concern for Cleveland's people? What other beverage do you think is uh, popular? This is another beverage that sometimes can be taken for granted. I think it's fair to say that a lot of beverages could be taken for granted, like chocolate, or hot chocolate, or uh, coffee, uh, tea, whether it's hot tea or iced tea, orange juice. I mean, I could go down the line, but if there was one other beverage that I could say right up there with water that could be of primary concern right now for Cleveland's people, it would be milk. Well, it is fair to say that many in Cleveland, like elsewhere in America, were accustomed to finding one to two bottles on their doorsteps daily. 
My father uh, has often told me that when he was growing up as a child, the milkman came to his home daily um, to bring like one or two uh, bottles of fresh milk. And what a treat that was, as my dad said. Uh, so, yes, to have milk being dropped off at your uh, doorstep daily, that was a very, very nice service. However, by um, the time the storm is making its way into Cleveland and the people have now felt the wrath of it, Mother Nature has now made things difficult with regards to um, accessibility behind daily essentials. In other words, you know, it's one thing to have access to something, but when you're in the midst of a bad storm, the ability to access daily essentials takes a huge step backwards, and it does make you rethink um, life itself. It also makes you rethink what can you do in terms of survival, given if, say, electricity isn't restored within, you know, one to three days. What, how are we going to survive if, um, if we can't get to the store, grocery store, that is, within the next two to three days? You know, more often than not, you know, weather forecasters will say, hey, if you're unsure, this would be a good time to go to the store to get at least three to four days worth of um, food. And yes, based upon my experience and having worked in grocery store settings, um, I saw customers <laughs> buy stuff left and right like there was no tomorrow and then all of a sudden the storm passes and it's like my gosh we spent x amount of money on stuff that now all of a sudden maybe we don't need but now people in cleveland though have faced they have faced snowstorms in november but nothing like this and now um the means of of um accessibility to daily essentials it's making them think twice as hard now about what the future is going to hold. So people in Cleveland whom did not have children were told by city officials to refrain, or I should say hold off from purchasing milk altogether. In other words, the only people whom should be allowed to have the milk are those um, couples with children. Now, talk about a sacrifice right there. The only viable option, though, to get milk to those who needed it rested upon a dairy company known as Bell Vernon Mays Dairy Company, which happened to be a big supplier of uh, Cleveland's um, milk. The company sent men on uh, horses to nearby places where the milk was stored and it was loaded on sleds, believe it or not, loaded on sleds, and then it got placed on, uh, and the beverage was placed on trucks that got sent to Cleveland. Uncertainty loomed everywhere in Cleveland to where many believed essential provisions like milk, water, food in general, wouldn't, wouldn't last close to or after three days. Even the word famine showed up in news articles, including statements from public officials. Famine being, you know, a shortage of food to where if people don't get um, access to those uh, daily essentials, that there could be deaths amongst uh, the greater public that could loom anywhere just shy of or right over uh, thousands of people a scary thought folks but you know when but when uncertainty like this comes around i mean people people do sh people become fearful and they become so fearful to where it's hard to get that uh, state of fear out of their minds monday november 10th the snow had finally stopped falling in cleveland and by no by thursday november 13th a state of normalcy was beginning to return. That's a sigh of relief. Was the shipping industry facing a state of uncertainty? If anybody doesn't think the shipping industry was facing a state of uncertainty, I can tell you right now that uh, something's not right. Well, the answer is a, a definitive yes, 
that none of the uh, shipping companies whom had boats on the water dating back to Sunday, November 9th, knew the status of their vessels, along with lacking any means and having direct contact with them. So, hey, if I'm not mistaken, what isn't, wasn't there one um, shipping company that um, scoff, liked to scoff at the Weather Bureau? But then again, many shipping companies often scoffed at the Weather Bureau. One in particular was that um, Acme Transportation Company. Weren't they the ones that had about at least eight, eight vessels on Lake Huron's waters? Yes. And we have to keep in mind that even shipping companies in the early 20th century did not have um, automatic uh, contact with their um, vessels. As a matter of fact, uh, the only real contact they would have had was uh, prior to the captain and his crew departing um, the harbor as well as when they officially arrived to their uh, destination of port. Arthur H. Hawgood, who was one of Acme Transportation's uh, company officials, would go on to receive a slew of bad news. Given his company had many boats on the waters, Arthur Hawgood learned that the Henry B. Smith perished with all her crewmen aboard, including the H.B. Hawgood and J.M. Jenks, whom ran aground. Other vessels sustained damage from the storm's wrath. It's not a good time right now uh, to be in the uh, shipping industry, but especially for Acme Transportation Company. What issues required um, quick resolution on the part of uh, Cleveland's city leaders? Well, wouldn't it be fair to say that just about every issue we've talked about would have re required quick resolution? Yes. But if we had to pick one in particular, what would it be? How about the removal of snow and restoration to daily essential services? Remember we talked earlier about the uh, trolley cars and the tracks and how they were pretty much, um, how, and how the snow had was so bad to where um, it shut down the transportation lines? So the trolley lines need to be up and running. How are you going to fix this problem if you are uh, a city official? You need workers. You don't need just a few workers. You need probably at least a thousand. So how many workers um, ended up um, coming out to, um, to get the job done? I'll give you a number. It's between one and 2,000. The answer is 1,500, folks. 1,500 workers began working in the evening of November 10th after the snowfall ended. The work paid off to where by Tuesday, November 11th, listen to this, folks, 14 out of 16 trolley lines were back up and running. Can you believe that? 14 out of 16 trolley lines are back up and running. There's no time for complaining, folks. There's no time for pointing the fingers. You've got a job to do, and you need to help the city out. Yes, the city will help you out. But this is a good example here of um, something that would be said by a future president uh, 48 years after 1913, come January 20th of 1961, when John F. Kennedy was sworn in as uh, America's 35th president. He said this, Today I ask my fellow Americans, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In other words, for the people of Cleveland, this was not a time for them to, to say, well, what can the city do for us in the snowstorm in the midst of what we're going through? In other words, what can you all, the people of Cleveland, do to give back to your city, including those whom run the city? What can you all do? You can get up. And you can go help and be a part of something. Go do something about this. Because you can't rely on the government to do everything for you. You can't rely. I'm not trying to be political here, folks. But this is a time where, you know, people have to get up. They need to not be thinking about pointing fingers. They need to be part of the greater team. This is where we all need to be in the us, we, ourselves 
uh, mode, and we should be more so in us-we-ourselves mode far more than I-me-myself. Because I-me-myself isn't going to get us anywhere. So the good news is that now that with 14 out of 16 trolley lines being back up and running, people are now going back to work. And by Thursday, November 13th, all streetcar lines are back in full service operation. Talk about a lot of progress, but talk about a lot of teamwork, a lot of good leadership. So much good came out of the storm, folks. People came together. Not that they probably weren't together before, but sometimes it takes a storm to really get people um, to stop and think, hey, what if this happens again? Are we going to be perhaps as lucky as we were the last time? In other words, you know, yes, there were um, some unfortunate things that happened, but everybody came together to uh, see to it that the city um, made it through a um, dark moment in its time. And it turns out, folks, that about $30,000 being was the total cost for the Cleveland Railway Company to pay regular and overtime wages to all of those whom uh, had gone above and beyond to helping um, with the city's uh, cleanup uh, process. Well, I'll tell you, Cleveland um, rose from the ashes. They were paralyzed by a storm that came out of nowhere. And it turns out that uh, as the week uh, progressed, that week did, temperatures fluctuated again, folks. They went back up to being a little bit above normal. So Cleveland has gone from one extreme to another and back to the same extreme that it was temperature and weather-wise prior to uh, receiving um, a blinding snowstorm that it was um, totally um, caught off guard by. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment, and I look forward to being back on the air again uh, next time. And when I'm on the air again next, we are going to be uh, discussing a new uh, part to November's theory, being the following. I might see you in heaven. Explorations of loss. This will uh, focus on ships that survived, ships and their crew that survived, as well as those that didn't. After all, we still have uh, a great deal of information to learn about with regards to those whom uh, survived, as I said a moment ago, those who didn't. And it's not a question of so much those who survived and those who didn't, but the stories behind the survivals, behind the surviving of this um, of this um, un unimaginable storm, as well as to those whom perished along the waters. So thank you again for your time, as always, and I look forward to being on the air again soon, and wherever you all may be, uh, continue to stay safe, and thank you again for your support. It means a lot. Without people like you all, I don't know where I would be, but thanks to you all, um, you guys are amazing. So continue to listen to the podcasts, continue to get the word out, because this is... Uh, what makes all the difference in the world. Take care for now and stay safe.